You remember being a kid and your mom was going away for a little bit and she gave you that list, that to-do list of all the things that she wanted done before she got home? If you're a teen, you don't have to remember, right? It's like I, I live that every, every week I get that list. And you know what it is, right? It's okay, you got to have your, your clothes put away. You got you to fold the laundry. You got to vacuum the house, unload the dishwasher, all this different stuff. And if you're anything like me, you know how it worked, right? You just did whatever it is you wanted to do until about half an hour before mom was getting home. And then it was like panic mode. All right, I got to get everything done real fast. And, you know, anything I can't get done, we're just kind of shoving in the corner somewhere. And hopefully she doesn't notice. That's just human nature, right? That's just how a lot of us operate, is we want all the time we have for ourselves. And Jesus, he knows this about us. So as we consider or continue our study through Mark's gospel and just our empowered series, uh, Jesus, he knows that his time on earth is getting very, very short. Less than a week away, he's going to be crucified. And so he also knows that, hey, he's exiting planet Earth, and he's going to give his disciples and now us some instructions for how they should live when he's not physically present on Earth anymore. But Jesus, he understands human nature, that if he were just to give us a timeline and say, all right, on this date, I'm coming back, well, how would we all live? Well, most of us, we'd live for ourselves, and then maybe a couple days before Jesus showed up again, well, then we'd try to get our lives in order, right, so that he'd be pleased with how we live. So he doesn't do that. He doesn't give us the dates. Well, let's check out and see exactly what he does give us in Mark chapter 13. This is by far the most difficult chapter in Mark's gospel. Let's go ahead and we'll tackle it, all 37 verses. John Mark writes, And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be there left here one stone upon another that will, be, that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but, but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations." And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and if the father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. 
And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been seen from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and to the ends of the heavens. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake For you do not know when that time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake, therefore stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So, Remember, we're, we're in some very tense times here in the life and ministry of Jesus. Okay, it's Tuesday of the Passion Week. He's been peppered with questions. He's kind of set the religious leaders straight and challenged their thinking. And it's, it's been really some tense time. He's overturned the tables of the money changers in the, in, the, in the temple. There's been a lot going on. Well, now they're leaving the temple courts. And as they're leaving the temple courts, you get the idea that the disciples, they're, they're just like tourists, right? I mean, they're looking there this way, and they're craning their necks that way. They're just checking everything out. And they're amazed by the size of the stones, the size of the temple, the great buildings. They're just amazed at Jerusalem. And so Jesus, he basically asked the question, you're, you're amazed at all this? Let me tell you what's really going to be amazing. In a very short amount of time, you're not going to see one stone left on top of another. And so then, first chance they get, four disciples, Peter, James, John, Andrew, they, they get with Jesus. They say, hey, Jesus, can you just tell us, like, when is this going to happen? I mean, this sounds incredible. Not, not one stone left on another. I mean, we're looking at Jerusalem. We're seeing this grand temple. When, when is that going to happen? And this opens the door for Jesus to begin to explain the destruction of the temple that would take place in A.D. 70, And also, it opens the door for Jesus to be able to talk about events concerning his second coming. And so, this passage gets very, very tricky to understand because Jesus is talking about two different events. He's talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and he's also talking about his second coming at the end of time. And so, 
he doesn't really give us clues as to when he's shifting back and forth between the two, and it gets really hard to understand. Now, Paul, when he wrote his final letter to, to, in 2 Timothy, he encouraged this young pastor, Timothy, hey, listen, you got to encourage your congregation not to get involved in any kind of theological nitpicking, okay? Because that's going to be the tendency of some to just want to like nitpick the scriptures and all, all this kind of stuff. Don't let them do that. Because when you do that, what happens? It's not really good for themselves, and it can actually undermine the faith of others. Instead, what you need to encourage your people to do is to live a life that is uh, approved before God. And so, I mean, this is what we talk about at Central a lot, right? That if you want to talk about depth of Bible study, you're always talking about application. Because the Bible is given so that we know how we ought to live, that it impacts how we live. It's not just given for like mental knowledge, right? It's given so it would change our lives as we're being progressively conformed into the image of Jesus. Now, Mark 13, this passage, well, it's one of the passages in scriptures that really has been theologically nitpicked to death in some ways, all right? There's a ton of interpretations, well over 15 interpretations on what Jesus is saying here in this passage. And just so you know, right up front, I am not the guy who's just going to settle like all the interpretations once and for all and say, this is what it means, you know, no need to discuss this anymore, okay? I'm not that guy. If I said I was, you should probably laugh and call me out on that. But there are plenty of people who claim to be that guy, all right? There's a lot who have, they've read this passage and they've come up with their like countdown clocks and countdown calendars. They can point to the date and say, here it is. This is when Jesus is coming back. Now, Jesus himself says, no one knows. Angels don't know. Jesus says, I myself don't even know. So I'm thinking that those who have kind of engaged in this behavior and says, here's when Jesus is coming back, I think that's the kind of theological nitpicking that is no good for themselves and actually undermines the faith of others. Why? Because they don't know. If they, if, whenever you claim to know something that Jesus himself doesn't know, you're probably on really shaky ground, okay? So, however, having said that, there is a lot that we can know from this passage and a lot that we can understand. So let's go ahead and dig in. Right? The disciples, they come, and again, they're just mesmerized by everything. They're mesmerized by the size of the stones, the buildings, Jerusalem. Why? Because these are city guys, right? They've spent their whole time up in Galilee, out on the lake. So now they're in the big city of Jerusalem, and wow, this is so incredible to them. And they're just taking it all in. But if you're with us last week, Jesus, he, 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 he kind of takes the disciples, and they're probably looking this way at, at everything going on in the temple, and he just focuses their attention to this poor widow who's giving just one penny, two coins equals one penny. And he's telling his disciples, look, this is what real faith looks like. This is it. This is what living looks like. This is what faith looks like. This is what you need to be looking to. Why? Because they're, they're impressed with who's ever like, making the, the, uh, the coffers really cling and all this and the noise of it all. And these people come in with their fancy robes and give all this. He's saying, no, 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 no. Look at this widow. This is faith. And so now he's basically doing the same thing. He's, he's turning the heads of the disciples. He's saying, you guys are so enamored 
with all of the buildings. I got to help you look past all of this glitzy religiosity and to help you see just the barrenness of the temple. Because what these guys don't see, what they're missing, is all of the temple leaders, what are they doing this whole time? Well, they're, they're just plotting and planning how they're going to kill Jesus, right? And they're, they're, So they're using, how can we use our power? How can we use our authority? Who can we conspire with to make sure that we get Jesus? And then as soon as they get Jesus, what are they going to do? Well, then they're going to turn their attention to the disciples. And then they're going to want to get them too. The disciples, they don't see any of that. And so Jesus, he's trying to turn their heads to see. They want to know when. Okay, Jesus, when is all this going to happen? When, when, when is the temple coming down? And so Jesus, this is the question that he begins to answer. All right? This is the first question. He uses that as a jumping off point to get to end times, but he begins by answering the question when the destruction of the temple will happen. And he starts explaining to them, hey, don't be disheartened by all the persecution and everything that's going to happen. Don't be panicked by the wars. Don't, don't be led to apostasy during these difficult times. And times would get difficult. By the time Mark was writing his gospel, it was some very difficult days, especially if you claim to be a Christian, a follower of Christ. And so the Roman historian Tacitus, he wrote about these times, and he said that these times were rich in disaster, they were terrible with battles, they were torn by civil struggles, and they were horrible even in peace. I mean, it felt like the whole world was falling apart, just collapsing around them, especially if you were a follower of Christ. And so Jesus, he's giving these warnings beforehand to his disciples so that they would be able to withstand all of these really hard times that were coming. And so Jesus says, hey, during these difficult days, really, he's trying to build up the spiritual empowerment and discernment so that they would rightly understand the times in which they were living. Because there's going to be all kinds of deceivers who show up, and they're going to, they're going to claim to be the Christ, right? They're going to, hey, I'm, he's already back. Here, here he is. And he says, hey, no, you've you got to have the discernment to see through all these imposters. And, and you've got to have the, the strength to not just go along with crowd think. Because you know how it is, right? When the whole crowd is all about something, well, it's easy for us to just join in with the crowd. Well, if everyone else believes it, it must be true. I'll go along with it. And so he said, no, no, no. You've got to have the strength. You've got to have the wisdom. You have to have the discernment to know what is true. Because here's the thing, when things are hard, I mean, when life is really hard, we as human beings, we have a tendency to cling to false hope, right? Even, even if we know it's not really true, if, if it provides some sort of hope, we'll just cling to it. Because some hope is better than no hope, right? And so this is our, and he's saying, no, 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 false hope doesn't really do you any good. And in the same way, he's saying, and I don't want you to be paralyzed by fear, because that can be the other extreme that we go to. We just kind of retreat back to a safe place and try to ignore what's going on in the world. And so he's saying to his disciples, hey, look, yeah, there's going to be all kinds of imposters, charlatans coming. You've got to be able to see through them. And at the same time, the world's going to get really, really noisy because there's going to be wars going on. There's going to be rumors of wars, kingdom against kingdom. There's going to be natural disasters, earthquakes, famines, all this kind of stuff's taking place. 
And you have to be able to know what's really important. You have to know who I am and who I created you to be. And in the midst of all this mayhem, in the midst of all this confusion, trust that I'm still in control. And that's a lesson that we, that we need for our, our lives here and now, right? And the craziness of our world, whether it's you know, worldwide or just even our own sphere, sometimes life gets hard. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's painful. And in the midst of every, when things seem confusing, when things seem chaotic, it seems like mayhem is just prevailing, during these hard times, we trust that God is in control. During hard times, we trust that God is in control. And that is a hard lesson. Because when the world is collapsing around you, all you want is deliverance from it. Right? You just want things to be made right again. And so if I cling to some false hope, at least for a moment it's hope. If I, if I go to the other extreme and I'm just paralyzed by fear, well, at least I can just shut out the world and just ignore this even happening and just stay, stay in my like, quiet little bubble here for a moment. And Jesus is saying, I don't want that for you. I've made you for more than that, right? So you must focus on who I am and who I've made you to be. Why? Because Jesus says, these are actually just the birth pains. Things are going to get much worse than even that. And so there's going to be persecutions that come, and it's going to challenge your resolve. And you've got to be alert, Right? Don't pay attention to the charlatans. Don't, don't fix your eyes on all the international politics or anything like that. Focus on who I am and who I've made you to be. Suffering and hatred is coming. This is what he's telling his disciples. It's coming. And that's not the end of it. Christians are going to be handed over to local councils. They're going to be flogged in synagogues. They're going to be taken before kings and Governors, by the way, all of this stuff happened, right? All of this happened in, in and after AD 70. And so then when Jesus says, hey, when all this happens, then you flee Judea. What happened? The church fled Judea. And they took the gospel of Christ all over the Roman Empire and began starting uh, church fellowships all over the place because the gospel expanded. So when Jesus is preparing the disciples and preparing really first century Christians for what was going to happen, well, this happened. But at the same time, as he's doing this, he's also shifting into apocalyptic language that's going to happen at the end of days. And so it gets really tricky to kind of understand, okay, Jesus, are you talking about what happened in AD 70? Or are you talking about what's going to happen at the end of time? And all, and sometimes, you know, where, where you draw the line, it gets, it gets hard in this passage. One thing we do know, though, is he is equipping his followers how to handle life when life is hard. How do you handle persecution? How do you handle things when things get so messed up, so upside down, that you start seeing brother betraying brother to death? When you see fathers turn on their own children, and you see children turn on their own parents, why? Because there's such a hatred of the gospel or such a need for self-preservation that they will do anything at the expense of anybody else. How do you handle life when things get that crazy, when things are that upside down? Well, first you understand that God is still in control and his purposes will triumph. 
And I know in some ways it almost sounds cliche and almost empty, but it's so true. And, you know, we wonder, God, why do bad things happen to good people? That's the question humanity's wrestled with so much. Why do bad things happen to good people? It puzzles us. It confuses us. It bothers us on some level. And Jesus, as he's explaining all these terrible things that will happen before AD 70, before his second coming, he doesn't really give us an answer to that question. What he does, though, is he assures us that everything that happens in life, it's all within the scope of God's grand and perfect design. That he, nothing catches him off guard. He's not surprised by any of it. He, he doesn't just one day look and say, I can't believe that these brothers who like loved each other, I mean, they were, they were like so tight. And the one now turned on the other and killed him? I, just, I, can't, I never saw that one coming. That's never God. God never looks down, well, fathers are now betraying children? What's happening to this world I created? None of it's beyond God's scope. He, none of it catches him by surprise. And somehow, God's going to turn all that evil, and he's going to turn it into good, because he's a God who redeems. So as we sing this morning, you know, God, you're, the God of breakthroughs is on our side. That's what he's trying to get his disciples and his followers just to trust him. That in the midst of chaos, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of mayhem, I'm on your side. Things could have been much worse if I wouldn't have shortened the days. You know, the, the, you know every, No human being could even stand. He's saying this. So Jesus, he's cautioning his disciples and now us to not spend so much of our time and our attention just speculating on when things will happen, but instead focusing on our, our attention on what we are to do in the meantime, who we are to be, how we're to live, to live out the identity that he's made us. So, uh, you know, this is so important because even in the first century, uh, Christians then thought that Jesus' second coming would happen in their lifetime. So much so, things became heated, there was debates going on, and Paul, he has to actually write to the church in Thessalonica, and he says, hey, don't be unsettled by any of this, uh, you know, you're becoming alarmed by prophecy, let's just calm down here. Uh, Jesus, he, he's, he's doing the same, he's preparing his people beforehand, he's warning about the destruction of the temple, and that is unsettling, right, especially if you're first century uh, Jew who just became a Christian, and you're hearing about the, the, uh, the destruction of the temple? Because the temple was the place that symbolized God's presence with his people. It was the place that sim- symbolized God's power to, to rule and to reign. It was, it was the place that symbolized his uh, blessing over his people. All these things. And he's saying this is going to be torn apart, not one stone left on another. Why? What's Jesus doing? Well, he's turning the attention, the mind's attention, the heart's affection away from a temple, a building, to himself. Why? Because it doesn't matter how big your walls are. It doesn't matter how big the stones are, how grand the buildings are. He's not coming to save buildings. Right? We understand that we are the church, right? You and me, we are, this building is not the church. When in times come, the building is reduced to rubble, all right? We, so Jesus, when, whenever we like worship a building, we've put our trust in the wrong thing. We're honoring the wrong thing because Jesus, 
is who we honor. He's, he's who we live for. And so he's turning the heads of the disciples, now our heads, away from the walls and the fortifications and the weapons. Because if God is not on your side, it doesn't matter how great your building is. None of, none of that matters. And it's a reminder for us that we look to Jesus Christ, that he is our rock, he is our fortress, he is our sustainer, our redeemer. And so he deserves all of our mind's attention and all of our heart's affection. That's actually just what he had said and we looked at last week, right? What commandment's the greatest? This is the greatest commandment, that you love me with all you've got, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. We give all of our mind's attention and all of our heart's affection to Jesus. And that's so important because when things get bad, it's easy for our mind's attention to go this way, our heart's affection to just go other places. And when we read about how bad things are going to get, it's terrifyingly bad when you see this. Uh, but when our focus is on Jesus, it enables us to endure any affliction. And the afflictions will be brutal. Jesus, he, pa- he paints the picture that we've already talked about, and he paints this time when the sun's going to be dark and the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling, the powers of heaven will be shaking, and he's weaving together passages from Isaiah and passages from uh, Joel. And he's putting this together together. And what I think he's doing here is just showing creation not collapsing, but in this state where it's, it's almost bowing before the overwhelming might of the Lord of hosts when he steps back into his world to enact judgment and at the same time secure salvation. And by the way, based on the text, I, I don't see this as like, all these warning signs, okay, and then we're getting ready, getting ready, getting ready, and then Jesus coming. I see it all as like at the same time, right? Boom, here's creation bowing before the creator, and much like when Jesus was crucified and everything goes dark, here's the same thing. Jesus is stepping back into creation as she herself, what God has created, bows before the return of her creator. And so... I don't think it's helpful to say, oh, when, when I see the moon get dark, maybe Jesus is coming. No, no, no. It's all these cosmic things happening at the same time, right before the Lion of Judah reenters his worth, his, his, his creation. Now, again, this is a difficult passage. And so if you see another interpretation, and there are many, you know, we, we can have a discussion. And when we get to these next, this, this next section of it, he gives these two parables. One about a fig tree, one about a doorkeeper. I'm not dogmatic on this, okay? But uh, let, me, let me just kind of walk at least how I see it. I, throughout this passage, Jesus has been talking about two events. He's been talking about the temple, AD 70, and he's been talking about end times. When he's shifting between the two can be difficult to see. When he goes and he begins to talk about the fig tree, I think he's just shifting back and talking about destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And then when he talks about the doorkeeper, in times. I think he's moving again between the two. And the point with the fig tree here is that one of the main reasons I take this anyway is Jesus says this generation will not pass away until these things have happened. Now, There are several times in Mark's gospel when Jesus says, this generation. Every time he says, this generation, 
this current generation, his contemporaries. So if this time he uses the phrase, this generation, to a different generation, well, what are your contextual clues that would lead you to believe that? I just don't are any. I, I think the first century readers, they, as they read this, as they hear this, when they hear this generation, they're thinking this generation. And, by, and, and when you see this stuff happening in AD 70, all, all of that, yeah, that. Um, the point, though, no matter what you take, Jesus is saying this, you can trust my words. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. You can bank on everything that I'm telling you. And so no matter what, that's what we, hey, God, even when I don't understand what you're telling me right here in the scripture, I will trust that you're speaking the truth to me. So give me the understanding so that I can understand it better and live out this truth as I live my life. Do we always have full understanding? No. By the way, that doesn't bother me. Because if I fully understood everything, I wouldn't really need God. I would be God. I don't have full understanding. I am limited, so it drives my dependence upon him. Do I want to understand better? Absolutely. Do I invest time to study and to know his word better, know him better? Absolutely. Um, but do I think that I have full understanding as God does? No. No. So, then Jesus transitions from the fig tree to the parable of the doorkeeper and it just seems natural that he's shifting gears. He begins by saying, but, right? So he's contrasting something. And I think what he's doing is he's just contrasting times, okay? This was for AD 70, the temple, but this stuff that's gonna happen later, I don't know, no human being knows, no angel knows. I don't even know when that's gonna happen. Only the Father knows when my second coming will be. And so the main idea that he's getting at here, and this is definitely second coming, and I'll see any way around that one, uh, but the main idea here is that the servants, they have no advanced warning of when the master's coming back. So when you have no warning, what do you do? You stay awake the whole time. And when he's saying stay awake, it doesn't mean like don't sleep. What he's saying is stay awake to what I'm doing. Stay engaged with who I am, with who I've made you to be. Because if you fall asleep and you just live life for yourself, what happens? Some charlatan comes around and everyone's going for whatever they're saying. He's, well, I'm a, I'll drink the Kool-Aid too. Let's just go for it. And it sounds good. False hope. Well, it's something. Or you become paralyzed by fear. Man, the world is spinning out of control. It's so chaotic. Everything they're saying seems upside down. I don't know what to do. I just want to kind of recluse back into my home and just safeguard my, me and my family so that we're not perverted by all this nonsense and so we're paralyzed by fear and Jesus no stay awake so that you know who you who who I am and who I've made you to be because it raises this question what, what kind of servant would you be if the master hired you for a job and your boss the whole time he's just going to kind of look over your shoulder and make sure you stay faithful to the task nobody would hire somebody like that would you I mean if you own a business is that who you want to hire Somebody who you know, the only way they're going to do their job is if you're like over them and watching over their shoulder the whole time. No, you hire people so that they can work and you're freed up to do the stuff that you, you need to do, right? And what kind of servant would you be if the whole time, 
okay, the boss went away. I just wonder when he's coming back. When do you think he's coming back? How long was he gone the last time? All that does is paralyze you. You're doing nothing. You're just speculating. Can you know? No, you can't know. It's just a guess. And Jesus said, stay awake. Here's the work that I've been giving you. And it's a glorious work. He's invited us to be his sent ambassadors to a lost and dying world to make disciples. This, this, and so when he comes, we work faithfully because one thing we do know, the master's coming again. He is coming. When? Don't know. He doesn't even know. But he's coming. And so stay awake. We work faithfully because the master will return. You know, it's interesting. This, this dialogue, it began with just some close friends, really. Jesus and four disciples. When Jesus ends it, verse 37, he says, I say to all. Right? I'm telling everybody. You, you might be hearing it now, but I'm saying this to everybody. Stay awake, right? Because the day is coming, the second coming of the Lord is coming, and it's going, to catch, it's going to catch unbelievers by surprise, but you who are followers of Christ, you should be ready for that day because you've been faithfully working this whole time. You have the spiritual discernment not to, go, not to be given to false hope, not to be paralyzed by false fear, but to focus on who I am and who I have made you to be. Because the rescuing and the redeeming work of Christ will happen. He's already rescued us from the penalty of our sin. Right now, he's in the process of redeeming us from the power of sin. And there will be a day when he comes again and he fully and finally delivers us from the presence of sin. And in the meantime... We're faithful because we know he's coming back. When? Don't know, but he's coming. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you are a trustworthy God. God, in the midst of a world that is full of chaos and confusion and, and a world that lies to us so much, never really tells us the truth, God, you always shoot straight with us, even when we can't understand everything you're telling us. So God, help us to be diligent. Help us to be faithful students of your word. And God, may we live it out so that we live lives um, that are approved by you. And God, when we do that, in the midst of any storm, in the midst of all of life, we can praise you. God, because you are a God worth praising. Help us fix our eyes on you. We need your help for that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.